the world changes, but the one constant is war. Sometimes lessons have to be relearned at the beginning of each war. And I'm hoping that some of those lessons will not be learned the hard way. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired colonel and orthopedic surgeon Alfonso Al Alarcon to Wardox. Dr. Alarcon is a native of Okinawa, Japan, and is a naturalized U.S. citizen. He completed medical school at the Uniformed Services University and trained in orthopedic surgery at William Beaumont Army Medical Center. He has held numerous clinical and leadership positions in his career and has served across the globe in places like Egypt, Korea, Germany, Iraq, and Nigeria both in combat and in humanitarian assistance roles. He's also been involved in military disaster responses in the U.S., including Hurricanes Katrina, Rita, and Matthew. You can read his full bio on WarDocsPodcast.com. Welcome to WarDocs. Today we have Colonel Dr. Al Alakarn. He is a orthopedic surgeon and uh, served in the military for 30 years. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here, Doug. Thank you. So you're a native of Okinawa and a naturalized citizen. Tell us what led you to Army medicine. You could say I was uh, born into the military. I was born in an Army hospital in the Okinawa, Japan. Our family's had a tradition of being in the military. My, my father uh, worked on Kadena Air Force Base as an uh, ophthalmologist uh, for the Air Force. So, And I had a, a grandfather that served in World War I with the, uh, as a steward on a, uh, a U.S. battleship as a Filipino steward. So, yeah, we got the Navy, uh, the uh, Air Force covered, and uh, uh, I uh, eventually found out about the uh, Uniform Service University because there was a, a flight surgeon that was working in Kadena, and they were USU's graduates, and they told us about a medical school where you could get everything paid for, kind of like a free ride, uh, but you'd have to be obligated to the military. It seemed like the, a right fit in terms of service uh, and also pursuing a military career, thinking that I wanted to be an ophthalmologist. But I discovered on my first deployment after medical school, uh, going to the Sinai, that uh, it was actually orthopedics that I was interested in. It was actually 1991 as a GMO in Egypt, in North Camp in El Gora. A soldier came in with an anterior shoulder dislocation and uh, had to read the book, learn how to pop the shoulder back in, reduce it. Uh, had a very satis- satisfying feeling and uh, said, I, th- I think I can do this as a career. And that's what uh, drew me to orthopedics. And eventually, after a, a couple of uh, attempts of getting a residency, uh, back then, you had to be a general medical officer after uh, medical school. Finally got accepted, actually, in El Paso, Texas, at the William Beaumont uh, residency program there. And got my orthopedic residency, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, and in terms of the MFO Sinai, yeah, th- that was a, a bookends of my career. That was my first assignment after internship at William Beaumont, going overseas uh, on a whim, just uh, following a friend. He was uh, assigned to South Camp, uh, Dave King. And uh, so I was assigned to North Camp. We were both, <clears throat> excuse me, GMOs. Uh, and then uh, lo and behold, in 2018, I get another tasker to, uh, as an orthopedic surgeon, to uh, go to the Sinai, uh, this time as part of a damage control surgical team as an orthopedic surgeon. And uh, the situation has uh, changed into a somewhat of a combat environment where it was a little bit more permissive back in 1991, but things change in Sinai, Egypt. And uh, so I got the, that experience uh, towards the end of my career. 
between that time as a GMO and as a forward surgical team member, how would you say things changed as, as overall strategy, capability, and just the overall experience? From my perspective, I started out with, with that experience as a GMO and uh, actually being involved when I was there in the Sinai uh, in a responding to a mass casualty with uh, some other uh, medics uh, right outside South Camp. And back then it was just... Uh, uh, just the basic training that I got with ATLS and simple tourniquets back in 1991. The, the, there was there was not uh, the type of evolution of uh, like a battlefield or a medical austere care that there is now, as witnessed uh, during the recent uh, injuries in Afghanistan. I was uh, I was uh, fortunate to be involved in in that process in terms of actually utilizing that as a combat surgeon in Iraq in 2003. Also, that same time frame as, a, as part of a Ford surgical team, being the, the team leader there, and also returning to Iraq in 2014 for Operation Inherent Resolve as a command surgeon at that time, uh, having to provide the planning for the infrastructure and all the capabilities, pre-hospital care involved, trying to establish that medical infrastructure to support that train advice assist mission again in Iraq. So I, I feel like I've seen the evolution of uh, the joint trauma system and been privileged to be a part of that. The Army recently moved from a combat support hospital to a field hospital model. You were in the last MASH before it converted to the combat support hospital. Most people remember the show MASH and may even know that it stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Describe to us the differences between the MASH and the combat support hospital and what was your experience and how the change impacted combat care. Again, I, I find myself uh, being very fortunate to be the sole orthopedic surgeon in the last MASH Mobile Army Surgical Hospital in the inventory before all the modernization to the Combat Sport Hospital. In my mind, it was all about mobility, the, the M part of the MASH. We were stationed out of Misau, Germany, and part of the 30th Med Brigade under 5th Corps. And at that time, uh, we were the only really mobile field hospital or role three. And when 5th Corps in Germany got tasked with medical support to the, uh, the push into Iraq in 2003, uh, they, they called upon uh, a capability that could, that could basically convoy for two or three days, set up uh, with all organic equipment, did not rely on contractors, did not rely on uh, lift capability. It was all organic, uh, what we call it dolly sets. So all the uh, uh, surgical ISO boxes uh, and all the tentage, uh, temper tents, uh, all that could be uh, carried in our own vehicles and we could uh, support ourselves with a field laundry bath facility, latrine facilities, uh, ECUs or air conditioners. So we were uh, completely self-contained whereas where we could actually support units that were outside the wire uh, attached to us. And uh, that capability was unique uh, to that particular mission to travel for two or three days inside of Iraq, set up within 48 hours and be prepared to receive casualties. The, the Combat Sword Hospital, uh, it's a great, great concept. And uh, the MASH was just a small slice of that. But in my mind, it was the real mobility uh, that uh, distinguished it, where it did not have to rely on flatbed trucks or any other uh, means to, to get to a location. And in addition, uh, like all combat sword hospitals, but in this, this particular mission, 2003, we were uh, capable of receiving NBC casualties, which, thank God, fortunately, we didn't have any, but we were prepared to decontaminate, do our own organic decontamination. And we did perform a big chunk of our uh, mission in mop gear uh, back then uh, because of the concerns of uh, Scud missiles and Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, which turned out not to be the case. So you mentioned that you were in 
Operation Iraqi Freedom, the first part in 2003, which means that your unit would have to convoy into the theater of war. Can you tell us a little about that experience of, of the convoy? We were in Kuwait in a place called Camp Udari. Now it's Camp Bering, just on the border of Iraq and Kuwait. We were training, getting ready for the mission, doing our rock drills or our exercises, uh, sand tables, what have you. We're working on our vehicles, uh, making sure that they were be able to operate in a desert environment. And of course, we were surrounded by, by hundreds, even thousands of other vehicles and helicopters. Back then, the 101st Airborne, never seen so many helicopters assembled in an airfield in my life. But we were all staged there. There were several camps uh, across there in northern Kuwait. But we, we did PT every day. Uh, I did my PT, and there was, there was a real rocky area. We A bunch of us surgeons would do, uh, do a couple of miles every day, do a unit run, and I ended twisting my ankle almost because uh, I consider, uh, I thought I broke it. And the commander got mad at me for potentially uh, deadlining one his own sole orthopedic surgeon. Thank God it was only an ankle sprain. But I uh, I got into that vehicle and crossed into uh, uh, into Iraq with a sprained ankle and, and basically did the entire convoy and the mission uh, on a uh, kind of grade three ankle sprain. But in terms of the convoy, uh, I just never seen a, a line of vehicles as far as I could see uh, over the horizon, just lines and lines of vehicles and tanks. And the initial push into Iraq was at night and everybody was driving way past the speed limit. It was, it feels like we were just driving like in those movies with when they're driving in the desert. All 11 of us in the OR group were uh, crammed in sardines into the back of a five ton truck. Uh, it was cold in the desert at times. It was dusty. So we had gators on. Thank God there was a staff sergeant there that was a... Uh, Desert Storm veteran and you know, leave it to an NCO to organize a bunch of officers, but they, they were able to get us to pack ourselves into sardines and sleep areas. We set up at a location, Objective Rams, uh, which is just a, a small patch of desert, uh, just 50 miles south of, uh, south of Baghdad, close to the Karbala Pass. And uh, we were there to support uh, 3rd Infantry Division as they uh, prepared to do their push uh, into uh, Baghdad. Interestingly enough, uh, they were waiting for their medical support to set up. So we had we were on a, a timeline to, to get to the location, get our staking team out there and put the tents up and get operational within 48 hours, all in the middle of a sandstorm <laughs> and uh, make sure that we could receive casualties before they, they made their initial uh, attack. But yeah, that, that convoy was, uh, was, a, was quite an experience. Tell us a little bit about the cases that you saw when you first got set up and started taking casualties. How many trauma cases did you guys see? It was a short mission, but we ended up seeing roughly about 100 patients. I myself operated on about 59 orthopedic patients. The majority of the patients ended up being extremity injuries on U.S. casualties because of the body armor. It would be able to protect the torso and the abdomen, so there's quite a lot of extremity injuries. It was like a constant mass cow for two weeks. I really appreciated the fact that there's a sleep, like a work-rest cycle that's necessary for a, an individual uh, orthopedic surgeon to take care of that many musculoskeletal injuries. And I really relied on my colleagues back then, Lieutenant Colonel John Cho uh, as a cardiothoracic surgeon. We had Todd Morton, who was a plastic surgeon. And I basically asked them to cross-train on how to put on external fixators. And they helped me while I took a nap. And, and so we could just maintain the, the, the constant flow of patients into the OR. But one memory stands out for me, and that was our, our one unique uh, burn mass cal, just a, a two or three, maybe four patients that had severe 
burns from an accident, actually. Sometimes more than 60% burns, facial burns, circumferential torso burns. And one gentleman had a circumferential lower extremity burn that got a uh, almost like a compartment syndrome from the leathery skin around his leg. And our plastic surgeon, Dr. Morton, did an uh, escherotomy or releasing that compartment just uh, using a electrocautery bovi uh, without any anesthesia because he's entirely insensate in that area and just releasing the pressure to save that extremity without anesthesia because he didn't feel any pain. Uh, unfortunately, some of those uh, burn casualties, are, they're very resource intensive and uh, that's a highly non-survivable injury at that time. So a few of them made it and a few of them, unfortunately, succumbed to their wounds. So when you were doing this, you had described as previously that you had minimal equipment and no C-arm. Tell us what it was like to have to do these surgeries and only have an external fixator. Deputy Commander for Clinical Services, John McGrath, uh, he had the foresight to provide us a lot of training prior to the mission. And this is training that was in Germany. An understanding that we were going to have a mission, most likely it would be in an austere environment, early entry, where there's not going to be a lot of resources. Uh, he sent us to do training, and we, we trained as a unit. We did live surgeries in Germany, uh, where the whole unit set up the entire MASH, and we did took elected patients from launch stool and operated on them, whether that's a hardware removal. We were able to do external fixators on on live animals. Uh, back in Germany, you couldn't do live tissue surgery. But uh, interestingly enough, the Danish army had a, a capability where you could do live tissue surgery on pigs. And so we went to Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, took our surgical team there, and we operated on uh, pigs that were shot by an automatic weapon and tried to resuscitate them and do, I would assist the general surgeons, and then we would do uh, extremity surgeries, debridements, and uh, practice on external fixators there. So, so that was, I felt like we were, we were prepared and I attribute the, the, the success of the mission from my perspective was, was the, the training, both individual and collective that we did. And of course, the casualties that came through launch tool. OEF started before Iraq. And so after 9-11, I, I was, we were all there uh, in, in launch tool when, uh, I, I remember when 9-11 happened, I was doing orthopedic clinic in the afternoon and one of my techs called me into the lobby and he, we were watching the television when the when the two twin towers were struck. And we knew then that something was going to happen. And soon after that, we started receiving casualties from, from Afghanistan. All these bearded SF uh, uh, operators were coming into launch tool. And then we were just operating on them, doing stabilization surgery, adjusting their fixators. So there, there was experience prior to entering into Iraq. And I felt fortunate coming out of launch tool and going into Iraq. One of the concerns that many people will remember for the United States was concerning, and you mentioned it, with Iraq and Saddam Hussein was having weapons of mass destruction. The United States faces a rising danger from terrorists and rogue states that seek to use these weapons of mass destruction. And for those who don't know, a weapon of mass destruction is a nuclear, radiological, chemical, biological, or other device that is intended to harm a large number of people. How did that impact the preparation and execution of the medical support when this was a significant concern with the initial invasion into Iraq? I hope we never have to be in that situation again, but always have to prepare for the worst. Our leadership understood that uh, there was going to be a real threat for weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, not, not necessarily radi radiological, but we needed to know how to do decontamination as a unit. Initially, we thought we were going to have a unit that was going to do our decontamination for us. And then we found out that us as a medical field unit would have to decontaminate ourselves and be able to decontaminate our patients. So from the get-go in Germany, we went through the process. They, they assigned actually a family practice doctor to lead the decontamination team. And we practiced 
but the practice that I remember or the training that I remember was actually in Kuwait just before the invasion where we, we used our pharmacist as a patient and we, uh, we decontaminated him. And we had all the equipment. We had all the uh, chem detectors. We had all the suits, uh, decontamination, scrub brushes, and we, we rehearsed it and practiced it. We never had to do that, thank God. But, uh, and of course, we had to practice using our mop suits. We had to practice using that and practice putting on our masks in nine seconds and doing that in our while we're sleeping. They would pull the alarm at night, and then we would be sleeping in our cots with our masks underneath our cots, and they would pull the alarm. We'd have to put the mask on and put the, the all clear, and we'd take it off. And we, we did that several times a day and several times a night. So we got very facile and very comfortable in an NBC environment. Uh, but one thing I do remember <laughs> is that you have to be physically fit because wearing a mop suit and, and actually doing something, doing your tasks in a, in a mop suit with a with a pro mask is actually very tiring, and I had I had uh, exertional asthma to begin with, so I, I really had to force myself to to train and and get myself in shape just just to be able to operate in a mop suit in a desert environment with a pro mask. Now I know in addition to you know being in Iraq and and dealing with the CENTCOM area of operations, uh, you also supported missions in Africa. Can you tell us any about some interesting experiences or stories that you had in uh, supporting what the Army was doing in Africa? I've had the good fortune of traveling through several countries in Africa in, in different capacities. But actually, it was in 2002, even before Iraq. Again, I was part of the Ford surgical team, uh, the 160th out of, out of launch tool. And a mission came down. It was actually a humanitarian mission in Lagos, Nigeria, uh, where... Basically, the Nigerians had a, a ammo depot containment site that uh, was poorly maintained and, and it exploded. And it, it actually devastated a large part of the city called Ikeja, which is a little bit north of Lagos. And uh, the EOD team out of Germany was tasked to go down there and facilitate uh, picking up all the unexploded ordnance or UXOs. And they needed a medical support. And you can imagine in Africa, uh, with the blood situation and the lack of infrastructure, if you're going to have a uh, uniform service member EOD personnel go to an African country, you're, they're going to need a lot of medical support, both from a surgical, uh, primary care, sick call, as well as force protection in terms of uh, dealing with sanitation, uh, food sanitation, as, as well as uh, protection against malaria. So 30th Med Brigade tasked, was, was tasked with a mission, and they, they delegated it down to a, a slice of our Ford surgical team. And uh, I was uh, honored to uh, lead that team. It was a combination of a, a slice of a Ford surgical team, along with a primary care sick call from an ambulatory surgery support battalion, as well as uh, force health protection folks uh, that uh, we, we went down there and it was an EOD-led mission, but we were in support and uh, we had to basically set up a forward surgical team at an airport and be prepared to receive any potential uh, casualties. Thankfully, there were no casualties, but uh, we, we had to develop an evacuation plan. And as I discovered in Africa, there's no mil organic military assets, either from the Nigerian military nor from U.S. military. So a lot of this was done through contracting uh, and we had to deal with cash using pay agents and getting contract with uh, basically uh, helicopter uh, organizations that work for Chevron Oil Company. And we used them as a medevac platform and uh, retrofitted it as a medevac helicopter and worked with Exxon Oil Company medical unit that had a CAT scanner nearby. And, and we utilized them as a backup uh, in terms of needing a CAT scan and needing a more like a uh, hospital facility. And then we had to work uh, medevac procedures using those uh, those contracted helicopters. So a very different kind of mission, nothing organic. Everything had to be cobbled together. And uh, it was kind of like a cash economy. 
And, and the blood situation was another trying to get blood from Germany shipped to Nigeria, uh, get it through customs and have it available just in case needed blood. That was another uh, adventure. In 2015, you helped support the Zika outbreak that occurred in South America. And for people who may not know, Zika is a mosquito-borne disease, and it's transmitted from pregnant women to the fetus and may cause birth defects and also cause neurologic symptoms in adults. How does the military prepare to respond to these unusual disease outbreaks, and how does an orthopedic surgeon help in the leadership of this type of infectious disease response? That was a very unusual uh, situation that I found myself in because actually I wasn't in an orthopedic surgeon role. I was actually more of an executive administrative role. Uh, of all things, I was working for what's called the TAO Trica Area Office, Latin America and Canada. Basically, uh, for those that are military, everybody knows about TRICARE. That's the, the, the contracted care that uh, that the military members get. Most people don't know that there, there's an overseas component to that, not just stateside for families, but for all uh, U.S. Uh, service members uh, that are associated with embassies. Uh, and so that TRICARE is available for them overseas. And the, the reason that I got involved with that, we were well embedded with uh, the, the Southcom surgeon's office out of Tampa. Uh, back then it was a uh, Colonel Ray Catchuela, the Air Force orthopedic surgeon, and he was the Southcom surgeon, and he knew the value of, uh, of Tricare because they provided through through contract mechanisms and network uh, a lot of the military care to the military personnel associated with the embassies because there's not much of a military presence there. Well, that outbreak occurred in Brazil, and uh, there's three embassy lo locations there. So, well, one embassy and two consulates, and th they started to get information regarding uh, the Zika virus. And uh, there was concerns that it might be spread uh, to the United States. Uh, so there was a, it was, it was more of a forced health protection led uh, effort. And uh, we played more of a supporting role in TRICARE, uh, ob obtaining the information through the contractor with regards to uh, maintaining the the health and well-being of the, especially the female members of, of either the family members of the service members or the female service members, uh, given the fact that it, there could be a association with Zika to uh, microcephaly. That was, a, again, an interesting experience in terms of trying to provide information through a contractor to the TRICARE. Now, I know a lot of our listeners are aware that the military supports major disasters you know, in our hemisphere and even around the world. And you were involved in the support after the 2016 Hurricane Matthew, a category five hurricane that hit Haiti. Uh, I think there was over 500 deaths and over 300,000 people who needed humanitarian assistance. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in that and what goes into the planning and support from the U.S. military? We did provide support, again, in my role as the uh, executive director for TRICARE Latin America and Canada. The U.S. service members in the region that needed to be relocated and uh, needed health care. So that was primarily focused on the service members that were in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, because uh, there was Navy presence there, as well as uh, another mission and areas uh, located in the vicinity of Haiti, uh, Port-au-Prince, specifically Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands. So we were more involved with uh, providing supportive care to any family members or service members that had to be relocated because of the hurricane, because the path of the hurricane, once it passed through Haiti, would be uh, continuing on through the, the Caribbean area and then making landfall in the kind of like a panhandle area of uh, Florida. But with regards to the uh, direct support to, to the uh, uh, to the to the Haitian people and Port-au-Prince, uh, I had the privilege of just monitoring along with the Southcom surgeon and their uh, subordinate service components the the response that they 
had had the fortune of getting the training to to be involved in humanitarian response overseas, of which this was an example. And for those situations, it's typically uh, USAID that's in the lead, and it's always the military in support. And typically, uh, the, the the support that uh, is most needed is a helicopter lift in terms of those situations, and also organizing a incident command and logistics, which is a, the strong suit for the military. So, over the last thirty years, when you were in the military, tell us the craziest orthopedic case you had during a deployment, and any lessons you learned and advice you might give to a current or future orthopedic surgeon. It was uh, again in Iraq. I was the uh, the commander for the one sixtieth uh, Ford Surgical Team. Uh, I was as an orthopedic surgeon, but also as a team leader there, and uh, it was a low volume mission. So. Maybe we did maybe eight or nine cases in, in eight or nine months. So, And I would say this is typical for low-volume deployments, uh, to be prepared for 95% boredom and 5% chaos. But that was the, that was the, that kind of mission. Uh, and when it was that 5% of chaos, one of them uh, ended up being an unfortunate uh, Iraqi citizen that had a, a mangled extremity. It was lower extremity below the knee. Uh, he was uh, in the back of a pickup truck dangling his leg outside, and then he was pickup truck was rear-ended and his, he got his leg uh, smashed. Uh, it was a non uh, couldn't salvage it, uh, ended up having to do a, a blow to the amputation. But interestingly enough, he came back uh, several several months later and he was actually interested in, in walking. He said he was getting married as a young, I think he was in his 20s. And uh, the one thing he asked of us was that could we help him walk uh, down the aisle for his wedding? That's what he wanted because there was no prosthesis at that time. This was 2003, 2004 in Iraq that wasn't available yet. So credit uh, our good, good general surgeon partner, uh, Ahmad Huck, uh, he, uh, he said, why don't we just make him a prosthesis? And of course, I mean, I assisted in that endeavor and we, uh, we made him a, a billet and a prosthesis. We made it out of some, some plaster. Uh, we took a camo pole. And we uh, sawed it down to size and took some wood blocks to, to make it into a, a foot attachment to, to put into his uh, shoe. And we uh, tied it to his belt using uh, surgical tubing. And of course, tried to make it look as po- uh, good as possible. And it actually worked. Uh, and he was quite pleased to, even though it was a makeshift prosthesis that we made out of uh, camo pole and plaster and wood, he was able to fulfill his wish and, and get married and walk down that aisle without crutches. Did you guys get invited to the wedding? No, unfortunately, no. We were we were <laughs> we were we were uh, we were confined to the fog. Well, one of the things that's nice about a podcast is that it's going to be around forever, really. And so, people maybe fifty, a hundred years from now may pick this up and listen to it. If your family picked this up in fifty to hundred years, what would you want them to hear about what you did in military medicine during your career? I was able to serve uh, in the military in whatever capacity they needed me to to serve. I said yes to a lot of missions. Uh, I, I took a lot of uh, jobs that I didn't necessarily learn through college or or through uh, uh, medical school. Uh, a lot of what I learned was on the job training. Um, but uh, if I had to pick a, a single moment or a contribution, uh, but uh, several things stand out uh, contributing to you know the. The MASH's last mission in combat in Iraq, and then another another uh, contribution uh, is uh, actually serving as a, a command surgeon for CJTF OIR as a colonel, and more as a planning role to to go again back into Iraq and establish that medical infrastructure for the train, advise, and assist mission in 2014. And whatever contribution I can make to the joint trauma system through my experience and AARs, uh, I felt like uh, hopefully 
for the next generation of combat surgeons, whatever experience, whatever lessons identified, lessons learned, uh, I can uh, get documented uh, or get captured uh, at this podcast can be a benefit for future surgeons that will have to go through this, uh, understanding that the world changes, but the one constant is war. Sometimes lessons have to be relearned at the beginning of each war. And I'm hoping that some of those lessons will not be learned the hard way. So you mentioned in that statement that there's a lot of jobs that you did that you weren't expecting to do or that you weren't really trained during your medical training to do. What advice would you give to a young physician who has just joined the military or is in the military early in their career as far as the advice you would have to pass on to them? Be open to new, uh, new opportunities. Find a mentor. Find somebody that has been down the path that you, you're contemplating and, and uh, latch on to that person and find out those lessons learned and, and try and learn from that individual. Some of these assignments uh, that I uh, came across, a little bit is luck. <laughs> but of course, uh, if you're prepared and, and you prepare yourself, uh, sometimes that, that luck and opportunity combine and uh, it's a winning combination, uh, at least from my perspective. Looking back with the retrospective scope, I was very fortunate to a lot of my assignments overseas. It's, it's not for everybody. You know, I mean, moving 12 times in 30 years and have traveling to over 45 countries, uh, both for, for TDY assignments or for the job, as well as uh, uh, other capacity. It's, it's not for everybody, but it's certainly exciting to, to be able to go and visit all those cultures and immerse yourselves and, and get to know all those people and have all those experiences and memories. It's something that I, I really uh, have no regrets. And uh, I would say that be open to possibilities of doing things that, that are outside your comfort zone and uh, be willing to, to learn. It's a continuous learning. Uh, a lot of what I've known now, I really didn't learn in medical school or in college. It was after medical school and college. So it's a continual, continuous learning process. And even now I'm learning <laughs> in, my, in, my, in my current job. So uh, as long as I'm continuing to learn on a daily basis, it's good. We've been talking to Colonel Dr. Al Alarcon on WarDoc's podcast and just wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for your time and providing these stories and insights and advice to those who are coming behind. So thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for this opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.